hair should be the third tenet of design. Hello and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. I'm Mia. Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And today, our guest is Lenny Ryan. I'm so, so, so excited to be able to introduce her to you all. Lenny is the founder and editor of Mold. Through original reporting, Mold explores how designers can address the coming food crisis by creating products and systems that will help feed 9 billion people by the year 2050. In addition to the website and a self-published biannual print magazine, Mold holds events and exhibitions, works with next-generation food brands, and commissions products from emerging designers. Then you won't let me read the rest of her amazing bio, but I suggest that you go to Mold and check it out because truly, y'all, I mean, it's called like creative brilliance at work. That being said, welcome, Lin Yi. <laughs> Thank you, Mia. I'm so thrilled to be uh, in conversation with you. Um, what an honor. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me and for just big upping my work. Like, what a dream. <laughs> uh, it's pretty easy to do. So what y'all didn't know is that Lenny and I are neighbors. And so we literally could like just kind of look right out our windows and see each other, probably with a little bit of support from glasses or magnifying, <laughs> but energetically can feel. <laughs> and um, also have the great fortune of having been classmates or almost classmates in college, right? So that's right. So I've had the... Yep. I've like... The pleasure of knowing one another for like we can count in decades. At we can, we can count in decades. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm both nervous and excited, like both sides of that, because I really, I'm, yeah, I'm struck by what your gifts are and excited to be able to create a, you know, just make a little bit of platform here. Well, so, I mean, there are many elements and principles that I think you embody in your work that are, that for me make you an emergent strategist. But to name just a couple, or for me, the most salient is that you are creating more possibilities, literally saying here is a huge crisis that we can meet with the best of our collaboration and thinking. And, and so, and also that then requires us to do some important adaptation, um, lean into each other with a real interdependence. And so I want to know if based on some of those elements, you would accept um, the premise that you are an emergent strategist. I mean, what an honor to be called an emergent strategist. Um, I would absolutely embrace that terminology. I've been very inspired by the book and the work that you and your team have been doing, just organizing people and, and bringing people into a certain consciousness around both, I would say, primordial, but also like radical ways that we can collaborate and depend on one another to birth new imaginaries. Yeah. So I absolutely would feel so honored to be able to uh, 
you know, embrace that title, that, that kind of uh, lens. You know, I started as a design journalist. And so when people ask me about Mold as a kind of online and print publication um, about our audience, I always, you know, talk about how the audience for the primary audience is really designers, because the hope is that by engaging with the work that we're producing on our end from storytelling, a storytelling perspective that designers would be inspired to think about their own practices and 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 work in a way that could offer different types of solutions at different scales. But the reality is that design as a kind of professional practice is not a siloed practice. It's um, very much interdisciplinary and very much requires the knowledge, the insight, the I would say just kind of participation of not only experts, but those who are directly affected and will be participating or using those designs. I think that that's the ideal scenario is that design would be able to create a large enough um, umbrella to embrace all of those different kinds of insights that uh, people might be able to provide before offering up any sort of solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that to me is an incredible and much needed hope in the praxis. I'm wondering, you know, what does it take to put that notion of like collaboration and centering those who are most impacted in a design process as the charge or as the mission or as the work? Like, is that there's, is there impediments to design and design to do that? Or do you actually think that the nature of design calls for it? Well, I think that fundamentally the nature of design and just the kind of design process has always been the, the hope has always been it, that it's participatory on some level. But the problem is that for decades now, design designers have kind of taken this idea that we need to take a human-centered approach and designers are really like, you know, almost these kind of uh, they, that they hold the knowledge and, and they're almost they're, they have been gatekeepers of the process, gatekeepers of that knowledge for decades. And I think that now there is a new like uh, a, a kind of a new wave in design where young designers in particular are like, well, you know, if we're designing, we shouldn't be designing for, we should be designing with. And I think that the work that I have been really interested in is designers who are really starting from that place of designing with part of the 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 joy of using food as a lens to talk about design is that there's really nothing i think more emotional and more kind of like foundational to who we are as humans than a kind of love and and emotion around food. And food is an incredible uh, lens to think about our interdependence, um, not just on other humans, but on other species. Um, Everything that we eat comes from a kind of magical uh, alchemy of microbes and fungi and soil and biology and seed and human tending and stewarding to create things to actually eat and nurture us. And I think that when we take a step back and think about ourselves as collaborators within this food web, as opposed to just, you know, kind of passive consumers, we can really 
activate this worldview of, oh, no, like, we, none of us live or exist in a silo. We are all dependent on one another for our common survival. And that is, uh, the broader that, that kind of perspective can be, I think the more generative, more exciting, um, the more possibilities to your point, uh, we can engage with. And we're, you know, I don't have to tell anyone here that we're in major crisis mode and the more possibilities, the more imaginaries that we can engage with, I think the better our chances are for finding a path through this really insane moment that we're living through. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many threads to what you've just shared that I'd love to pull. I think I want to just start with the first, which you've, it feels like you said, but I want to make explicit, how did you know mold needed to exist? You know, and what gap do you feel like the magazine fills? Mm. So I was editing an industrial design website called Core 77 in the early aughts. And it was really a crash course in industrial design. To be honest, I wasn't that familiar with the profession at that point. I, I understood it was this thing that was kind of well, not kind of, but it is ubiquitous. Industrial designers decide the shape, the material, the kind of physical functionality of everything that populates our built environment. And so, you know, the fact that like at the time there was, I could only probably name like two industrial designers. I was just like, this is such a weird uh, profession to write about and to report on because it is literally affects every single thing that we do, yet the majority of people really don't know anything about industrial design. So I was working, you know, as an editor for this incredible website, and I started seeing a lot of primarily student projects that uh, were kind of engaging with different aspects of the food system. And I've, as someone who's first generation, have has always seen food as a lens and a connection to whatever like home means, whether that's a physical place or kind of an emotional place. And so I've always been very much in, interested in food and food culture. Um, my father's like most favorite pastime is fishing. We had a garden growing up. My mother, my, my mother is a dietitian. And so I've always, food has always been very much central to our conversation. And so I was like, well, you know, I might as well just start a little website that documents this kind of emerging field of food design. And so I started just writing about all these mostly student projects that were like, you know, thinking about ways to engage with food. And in this process, I learned so much. And there was a poster project from an Australian designer, student designer, that basically was creating infographics um, to communicate this white label report from the United Nations that was, sorry, white paper report that was basically like, uh, heads up, if we keep eating the way that we do now, um, and if our relationship with food continues as it is currently, we will not be able to produce enough food to feed everybody on this planet. And I was just totally just struck by how dire the situation was and how nobody seemed to really care. And, 
you know, like currently we produce more than enough food to feed everyone. Hunger is, uh, especially is, is a systemic problem. It's a, it's not something like, you know, it's not like we don't make enough, we can't feed everyone. It's just literally access, economics, politics that is preventing that from happening. But we will be reaching a point, um, you know, in the next 30 years where we won't be able to actually grow enough food for everyone. And that coupled with climate change, uh, coupled with migration and just kind of the politics of, uh, of the, the, that we live in the world that we live in is just totally terrifying. I mean, incredibly terrifying. Yeah, I mean, most of us in this kind of privileged, uh, like, you know, American life that we live probably won't feel the the immediate effects of that. But I think that everyone will will be a witness and be responsible for that world if that's what comes to pass. And, you know, it goes everything from what we decide to put on our plates to how much food we waste to our relationship with consuming food like buying food all of those things affect the this kind of outcome So, you know, with such a terrifying crisis looming, how do you bring people in? And it feels like you have a really vast array of collaborators on mold in terms of, you know, not only designers, but fashion photographers and scientists and like folks who are thinking about the or considering this problem from multiple angles. But it feels like such an invitation, an invitation of, um, of heart and beauty with such a where the subject is so stark. Thanks, Mia. Well, you know, I mean, I think I'm an eternal optimist and I, I really, I just, I love beautiful things. And so the print magazine in and of itself was always kind of meant to be an artifact, like a design artifact, because, you know, when I started, launched the website, I was like, people were just so confused by food design. Like what is food design? And I didn't, at that point, I wasn't interested in defining the boundaries or gatekeep for what is or isn't food design, but I wanted the project to really be about the possibilities of food design. And I think coming from a place of curiosity, coming from a place of, you know, just kind of being a bit of an outsider, both in the design world and the food world, really, I I felt like that was an advantage because as you know, you may remember, like no one in food world ever talks about the future of food. I think only recently um, have people even engaged with this question. And design in general at the time was much more concerned with like furniture and lighting as opposed to thinking about, you know, food system collapse, for example. And so I think people were, the, the timing, there's a little bit of luck involved, you know, I think the timing was right. And I also think that just working with people who uh, like Eric Hu and uh, Matt Singh were the 
kind of founding art directors and designers on the print magazine and they're just incredibly talented and and just so smart and their approach really shifted everything I think for the magazine just letting them do what they do uh and just it's kind of sitting back and admiring and giving space holding space for that I think was a huge part of it I think we were all just everybody who kind of works on the print magazine in general is just excited about the possibilities and I really I think organizationally like I really tried to create space for people just to really do what they do best and get out of their way so in reaching out to people who are chefs who are scientists who are artists who are illustrators who are designers to either share their stories or share their work I think that everyone's pretty open to the idea because it is a bit of a kind of no man's land. Like nobody's, no one else is really doing it. And they're like, why not? Like, let's, let's, let's see what, what happens. And I definitely find um, just so much energy and delight in being able to, to, to experience that as well. You know, we make this print magazine on our computers and then a couple months later we get a physical thing in our hand and it's always such a joy to like, physically hold something and like open it up you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. absolutely it's interesting this is maybe a little bit of a tangent because I want to ask you about some of the innovations around food that we need to consider that have been highlighted in the magazine so I'm going to come there but I just want to make this little point which is I feel in you a hunger like when I hear you talk, when I listen to different interviews, when you're communicating about the importance of really designing around food for this moment, it actually feels like it's fueled by a hunger. And it's a hunger, though, that like, you know, can go either direction, right? And and so I love you talking about like having this product at the end. That's a hunger that's met with satiety, mm-hmm. right? Like that you're your capacity to create, to innovate, to work with others brings you to a new place and then you can feel the tangible results. And I imagine that brings some like just, you know, pleasure and, you know, (laughs) and it is an actual thing of beauty, right? So there's that. And then I think about how though underneath that hunger is also the unmet hunger, Mm. right? The like fact that we are moving towards this deep, serious crisis that we know is human made mm. <laughs> and you know in terms of the political implications or the climate crisis and and there's a real possibility inside of it that we might not need it mm, mm. <clears throat> we might we might not be able to meet the hunger i'm wondering how i mean you said you're an optimist so it's maybe not where you go with this but i do kind of wonder how you keep making the invitation for us to like sit with the hunger and be driven by it in a way that allows us to meet the moment with satiety rather than undernourishment. Mm, I love this uh, metaphor, Mia. Thank you for sharing this with me. So in the last issue, which was about seeds, we interviewed the seed activist Vandana Shiva. And I asked her, I was like, you know, our readership is primarily, we're not necessarily farmers. We're not necessarily like, you know, activists per se a lot of us are just designers or working in the creative fields like what is the 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 lesson for people working in creative industries and she was like you know the the what we need right now is an aesthetics of diversity and i think that that i think about that all the time and um 
I say this because I think that part of the work that I'm really just doing what I can, right? I'm I'm one person uh, working from home in New York City, working in English, and I can only really do the work that I can do and kind of send it out into the world with a lot of hope that it will resonate with other people. And you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I really feel like we have found an audience that does feel a sense of satiation from like engaging with the stories that we're trying to share, the perspectives that we're, we're kind of advocating for. But because the subject matter is urgent and we are at a real point of crisis, I, I hope that it comes across that it's not something that we can just kind of sit back and, you know, pontificate on, like, this is the time for action. And so I think that even in the last two years, there's been a real shift of consciousness for myself, and uh, therefore the maybe editorial voice of the magazine, both online and print, where instead of like, being like, oh, maybe lab grown meat will be the future of food, or like, oh, maybe aquaponic farms will grow, you know, salad in the desert. Like, no, like I'm actually much more interested in today as we speak, how do we create products and systems that will empower people locally to work together towards a certain type of food sovereignty, a certain type of food just agency, you know, having agency and access to food that is nutritious, culturally appropriate, that is that brings you joy, that brings you pleasure. And and I don't know what the answer is, but I've been this this past year has been very much about searching out stories that tell how certain communities, you know, engaging with designers or designers engaging with communities have offered a path towards that. And I think that that to me is the most exciting, fruitful, like definitive answer to this, that larger question of like, how do we feed 9 billion people by the year 2050? And unsurprisingly, as I'm sure anybody who is part of the emergent strategy family would have been able to tell me like years ago when I first started asking this question, it requires a lot of collaboration and also local communities responding with the tools that they know and have. There's not like a kind of one size fits all approach to this that I think we've been really brainwashed by the industrial revolution and in fact, like in kind of industrial processes to think that there is such thing as like a one size fits all universal approach to design. Like that's absolutely a a false narrative. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see what bubbles up from the ground up and and hopefully contribute to that conversation through the work that we're doing. Hmm. Well, so can you share actually some of the innovations around food that are that either we need to consider for current or future generations to have enough to eat? Like it feels like they're uh, just some pretty wild and really helpful and interesting explorations that Mold gets to highlight. Would you mind sharing a couple that excite you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we cover everything from speculative work 
too very much grounded in community-based work. And so I would say on the speculative side, you know, there's everything from, um, there's this uh, Alexandra Jenis. She uh, she is a Austrian designer working in the Netherlands. And she was really thinking about how can we use our physical bodies as farms or production sites of production for food in the future. So that's everything from, um, you know, kind of tuning in our microbiome to produce edible um, nutrients to, you know, kind of harvesting using you know, energies, liquids, whatever we are kind of producing as people into kind of driving into a kind of human agriculture, which is kind of insane. And so there's this idea that we as living uh, symbiotic bodies could potentially be sites for food production in the future, which I, you know, it's, it's, it's a speculative design project, but I think it begs the question of like, is that the future that we want, right? There was another speculative project by uh, the British design duo Burton Nita that similarly asked this question. And it was, they proposed like this wearable algae farm where it was like this kind of headpiece that would basically capture carbon dioxide as you build, as you breathe out, which then feeds, you know, algae. And, and, and then eventually you would harvest that algae for uh, food. And what I like about these kind of speculative projects is that it really um, opens up your imagination and asks the question of like, well, what future do you want um, as far as like your relationship with food? And I think that this is this kind of question about our relationship food with food is a really, really interesting one. I don't necessarily think that everybody wants to be a farmer I don't necessarily think everybody wants to like harvest and produce their own food. But what I do see is that how critical it is for people to actually know more about their food, whether that's where it comes from or how it's grown, uh, what's in it. I think that the more we can be in relationship with the food that we eat, the more possibilities open up as far as like how we might be able to feed ourselves in the future. On the kind of other end of that spectrum, you know, I have been so moved by the community fridge movement that I, we've seen really take shape in response to the pandemic. And, you know, I think that what, what I love about the community fridge story, it's, it's one that we had written about in our food waste issue from two years ago. But at the time, it was this kind of like, conceptual almost like uh, there were there were examples of people doing community fridges around the world but at least in New York it just seemed like an impossible uh, an impossible project and but you know COVID happened mutual aid groups kind of rose up and you know even in our community Mia like we have like a handful of community fridges that I have both serviced but also taken food from and I think that it's an incredible you know, hub, you know, I think about des- design basically, where you can kind of insert a design in a place and in a time that w- it would have a rippling effect across the whole system. I think these community fridges are a great example of that, where it responds to the kind of, I would say, just this terrible f- approach that we have to food waste. Um, uh, the, it, because it 
redistributes what could be wasted food uh, to communities in need. But it also, I think, highlights the best of what a living, working, woven food ecology could look like, where people are volunteering their time and energy to maintain these refrigerators. They are using their personal energy to, uh, you know, fill the refrigerators, clean them, get foods from one place to another and and then distribute those things. I think all of those things really say a lot. And I'm just so inspired by that type of work. You know, another example is of of kind of designs for, I would say, you know, community economics is there is a design research group in Italy called the Brave New Alps, and they did this project called Community Frizzante, where they basically designed a really local sparkling beverage brand. And the people who live in the town where it's produced are the ones who a like participate in like figuring out what flavors they're going to be every season. B uh, are part of the collecting of those ingredients, whether it's through foraging or through uh, agricultural partners. Uh, C they are they actually physically produce and bottle the sparkling beverage in that community. They design the labels. And then it's distributed through local businesses, whether that's like, you know, the corner store or the bar or the local supermarket. All of those places carry this kind of locally produced sparkling beverage. And then so the money then stays within the community and all the profits from this business then go to support other community-based initiatives. And I think that this type of community economics, this type of designed model is one that I think we can think about and, you know, use on in in different communities. Like what would the equivalent of that be for us here in Crown Heights North? Like, I don't know, but I am really excited to think about that and, 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 and find out and, and ask people what they would want to see. Is it a like a communal bread oven where people from the community can bake breads or or participate in bread making? I would I would love to learn how to make roti. I would also love to learn how to make challah, and you know these kind of staple foods that are are that literally nourish our communities. Like how do we create? spaces and opportunities where those things can be part of like a larger conversation or like a larger uh, network of care. I'm a keeper of the so much um and also you're speaking right to the heart of like you know carbs which is great um (laughs) for our hood I'm like yeah let's absolutely let's start with bread (laughs) yeah I'm like you know me too and like you know our neighborhood is so incredible because 
you know, not only is it very Caribbean, but also it's very Orthodox Jewish and bread is at the heart of all of those things. And so one of the joys of living in our neighborhood is that I can go get roti or like a coconut roll or just a gazillion types of pastries like at any time of the day, which I fully embrace. Um, (laughs) But I feel like, you know, maybe there's something there. Like, I don't, I don't know what it is, but if anybody's listening to this podcast and has some thoughts, like, please reach out to me. (laughs) Please. Well, so this actually gets at the crux of a question that Sage wanted to ask, which is like, you know, can you talk about the passing on of cultural practices through food and design? Absolutely. I mean, I think like, what is food if not fully cultural? Thinking about the ways that we could potentially offer solutions for the coming food crisis. One of the reasons why I arrived at this kind of conclusion that it has to be hyper-local, it has to be governed and steered by the people within those communities, however you define community, is because of this cultural piece. And I think that talking about food without talking about culture is, you've you've already missed the mark. Uh, You know, I can talk to you all day about like all the green leafy vegetables that I grew up eating and I still eat and I go to Chinatown to buy every week because you know the the neighborhood grocery stores although they do provide a lot of green leafy vegetables because thankfully we live in a Caribbean neighborhood and Caribbean people also eat green leafy vegetables like you know there's certain times of years that I just really want to eat a very specific type of green that I just can't get here in this neighborhood So, you know, I think that without starting at a place of like recognizing that food is fundamentally cultural, like it's, it's, you're not, you're not really designing for anyone, but for yourself. And so that's part of the kind of call, which I think uh, is another kind of conclusion I drew after writing about all these different things is that the food of the future absolutely has to be rooted in joy. And if there's a proposal of, you know, the food of the future being this kind of dystopic vision of like a pill or like a shake or like, I don't know, whatever it might look like, I think people don't really understand how food operates. We talked about pleasure earlier on about feeling satiated. And one of the things I love to share is that, you know, food Eating is the only thing that we do besides having sex that engages all of our senses. And so we are biologically um, engineered to to feel joy and pleasure, uh, like sensorial pleasure around eating. And when we're not getting that sensorial pleasure, it's not something that is sustainable. It's not a sustainable solution. And so we just always have to start from a place of like, what is the thing that's just going to bring me the most pleasure and consuming and and then kind of go from there. It feels like it's not, so there's like the pleasure and joy that is at the crux, which I feel really deeply. And as someone who, you know, loves to eat like many others, right? I, when you said this, like other than sex, where we engage all of our senses, I'm like, absolutely. And in fact, sometimes the same senses and the same, like things that light up in my body when I'm eating, (laughs) you know, during sex, I'm just like, oh yes, you hit the spot. So I love this place where food sits at the at this nexus of like joy and pleasure, and then also deep care. And 
it feels like both in your interview with Bandana Shiva, but in general, there is this real ethos of care that is permeating how we have to think about design for food in the future. And I'd love if you wouldn't mind just kind of talking a little bit about this ethos of care for you and how it's kind of migrated into your work. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. I mean, this is something that I've been really talking to a lot about, and this is the thing that I, I deeply, deeply believe in, which is that care should be the third tenet of design. You know, right now, I think a lot of students are kind of taught the uh, industrial model of form follows function. I mean, this is like like a, a concept that's like at this point, like 75 years old, like what about care? And I think that our relationship with food is a great way of understanding that in a very deep way, because what is eating besides an act of care, right? Like we're caring for our bodies. When you prepare food, it's for many people, it's quite meditative and it's been, you know, I think that a lot of people have these very tender moments and and memories of, of, of people preparing food in kitchens or, you know, outside or whatever it might be, you know, eating together is constantly like such a place comes from a place of joy, usually I would say. And so starting from a place of agriculture, even, you know, I was reading this incredible interview with the uh, farmer and seed steward, Rowan White, And she talks about how the original covenant between people and the land is agriculture. And, you know, you like the people take care of the land and in turn, the land takes care of the people. And if we can reclaim that as the centerpiece of our food web, then we are going to win if we can always start from a place of care. The problem is that over the last century, we have come. We are. We have come from a place of violence, really, and violence against the land. It was about making the land, you know, work for us, and we did nothing to care for the land. And it's gotten us to a place, you know, where we're at right now, where agriculture accounts for like an insane amount of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm not saying that like everyone should start farming, although, you know, if you've ever thought about gardening, I absolutely think you should. It's an incredible and humbling hobby to have. But, you know, I think that there's a there's this kind of opportunity that we have right now to reimagine our relationship with the land and our relationship with food. I hope that uh, all of us as consumers of food can kind of take up the mantle and make consumption decisions that that like like empower yourself empower uh producers uh when you can you know like i i think that that that's a that's a small but also infinitely promising step Can you share with us some of the most important parts of your political lineage? Oh, yes. I 
am a first-generation Asian-American woman. Uh, I grew up in Texas, attended public school my whole life there. That really shaped a sense of identity for me. I grew up in Houston. There's a huge kind of first-generation Asian-American population there, uh, a huge first-generation Chinese-American population there. And so I was very much nurtured by you know, Chinese churches, Chinese school, the Chinese community, but I always felt a bit on the outside of that and very much kind of rallied against, I would say very much a kind of white supremacist like attitude towards uh, non-white people that I grew up with. I came to New York for college thinking that I was going to study Chinese history. And then I learned about this incredible, you know, department called the Ethnic Studies Department. And that completely changed my life. Like all of a sudden, I understood and was given the tools and language for talking about my experience, but also my identity in a broader sense. And I could situate my history within this larger narrative that I never knew. And so I ended up uh, majoring in Asian American studies and making kind of incredible friends slash family friendships uh, during that time with Yumia as one of those people who, you know, really shaped my, my identity politically. And from, you know, that point on, I think a lot of people have had kind of political awakenings in college, if, uh, but I think from that point on, I just always understood the power of ground up organizing and the power of the people. I've always, I just always felt like this, I just had the language and the understanding that this system was not built by me or for me. And so it was okay to not participate in that system. And I think that that kind of attitude helped me, guide me to kind of be an entrepreneur and to want to tell my own stories. And I also think unconsciously has always, I kind of feel like I've kind of come full circle where when I started Mold, I wanted it to be very like, this is like, so kind of for better, there's like a lack of better. I just wanted it to be like, cool. Like, you know, like I, I definitely, but I mean, it, it was always provocative, right? Like I just, I chose the name mold because I wanted people to know it was not a food magazine. Like I wanted it to be something that kind of poked the the bear of big food and big food media. Um, and so that's always kind of informed my worldview. And so it's just so thankful to be able to be able to have a resource like Emergent Strategy to read, but also to have a community of people that many of whom I met in college that I can actually talk to about it. And so I feel really, I'm really excited by that. Mm. In fact, our friend Amber Baylor, uh, she gave me a, a book. We, we were, we, we both reread Emergent Strategies over the summer. Yeah. And then she sent me a book that I didn't know existed which is bell hooks teaching critical thinking book and so she found a copy for me and mailed it to me so i've been reading that also which and you know bell hooks has you know this incredible chapter about imagination and just how teaching is about sparking that imagination which i also think strategy is part of that thread Mm, yeah i love that ah shout out to amber (laughs) and of course 
bell hooks. <laughs> and this, the, you know, amount of, oh my goodness, uh, I love the formation of, you know, just thinking about what the ethnic studies department and the fights around ethnic studies, like that was a really incredibly formative time. So I love that. Well, so in that thread of imagination, you know, what do you feel like is emerging for you? Uh, is there an iteration of this experiment? Is there another experiment? Is it just, yeah, I'd love to hear what's emerging for you. Yeah. So I've kind of hinted at it a little bit in this podcast, but the the print magazine has always, was always in, in, supposed to be a six issue limited print project. And so we are working on our sixth and final issue now, which will be published in the spring of 2022. And so for the past two years, I've been kind of like trying to figure out what, what, well, what's next, right? So the online um, editorial will continue. And I, I'm so proud of the work that our team has done this, even just in this past year on telling incredible stories online. But we are starting a nonprofit organization that will kind of be at this intersection of piloting design projects that align with this vision of hyper-local food ecologies and uh, cultivating those things through designing with the community. And then, yeah, just kind of seeing what comes out of that. I've learned that starting something is often like the hardest part was just just doing it but once it's in motion it kind of tells you what it wants to be so I'm trying not to be too prescriptive about what it will be so mm-hmm. we will see but Mia yes. it's about yes. about doing it in our neighborhood so I am going to be calling on you for you know to be a design collaborator in this like I think that you've lived in this neighborhood for longer than I have for sure. I've been here for 11 years now. How long have you been here? Mm-hmm. 17. Yeah. That's right. So I I want I want you to be part of our design conversation. And, you know, I just like part of it also was sparked from um, this is some neighborhood politics for everyone who's listening, but there was a proposal for a developer to build a eight-story, 200-plus condo next door to us. And just to give you guys a, a, a bit of the kind of view, you know, we live on in a historic district in, in central Brooklyn. The majority of the homes in this neighborhood are like two or three stories, two or three family homes. It's very, very picturesque, very Brooklyn. And this condo proposal would totally disrupt all of that. And so there's been a coalition of neighbors who have banded together to, you know, fight this proposal and the friendships and the kind of learnings I, I've gotten through just organizing with our neighbors was so rejuvenating for me. Like I just needed that grounding energy and also just an opportunity to know, know people in a kind of, I would say, intergenerational way because you know I am a new mother I grew up in a church and with my grandparents and one of the things that I've always missed in my kind of during my like single years wandering the streets of New York's is this intergenerational mm-hmm. conversation and this intergenerational energy and one of the and, and that's what it means to design for 
living communities is that you're going to get intergenerational energy because people who live within kind of thriving, healthy communities are typically Mm -hmm. intergenerational. So that's something that's been really huge and kind of something that really unlocked for me during COVID, actually. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there are only certain experiments where the intergenerationality is taken out. And we can see the kind of you know, some of the chaos that emerges, you know, it's like on college campuses, right? (laughs) To some degree. (laughs) Even though though, there's also, you know, they're professors, etc. But you know, there is something different about that, like, live together, be together, learn from each other. I love what you're proposing. And the intention with it to be local and intergenerational and about seeding our future. I, I think that's just really profound and beautiful. I'm so, I feel really fortunate to be in such proximity to that vision. One last question for you. Um, well, I guess two, maybe they can go together. I definitely want you to let folks know how they can find out more about and or be in conversation with you about these blooming ideas and the, the work that you have. And then what's the most resonant question for you right now? Ooh, great questions. The first one's easy. Please just visit us at thisismoldmold.com or you can find us on Instagram at thisismold. Send us an email. All the emails go to me. So just drop us a line. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're doing, you know, how we might be able to work together to kind of realize this 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 vision of local food ecologies. And then yeah, the second question is very much linked to that, which is you know, the big question for me is how do we work in a way that leverages the technologies, the kind of communication power that we have access to today to cultivate really, really, really local, regional ways of being and 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 and, and eating and and supporting, you know, and I, I think that I'm learning about community economics. I'm learning about regional, you know, grain production. I'm learning about, you know, how simple things like having access to a mill can completely transform regional economic systems. These, all these kind of small, but very big interventions are are things that I'm very curious about. And and I want to know more about. So the more ideas, projects, things that we can learn from both the past, but also use our kind of current toolbox of technologies to to envision and implement, I think the better we're going to be. This podcast is produced by Natalie Peart. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riffraff and their album, Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, please make a donation at alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.